0: Part 4 of Human Sacrifice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Allen. Human Sacrifice by John Emirich Edward Dalber Part 4 The most perfect spectacle of the natural development of human sacrifice. Is afforded by America, where during fifteen centuries after the birth of Christ, and probably for as long a period before, the gods of idolatry retained their authority unmolested by those influences which in the old world interrupted or altered the progress of paganism, such as the contact of nations not equally civilized, the rise of commerce, philosophy, and political freedom, the presence of a chosen people and the action of monotheism, polytheism, and pantheism upon each other. The people of the New World, separated from the rest of mankind, lived for ages on their original stock of religious ideas, which they, with persevering consistency, pushed to their extremest consequences. There is no other example of a civilized people whose religion was abandoned entirely to the action of its own laws without the restraint of literature or speculation and therefore without any recorded theological reform such as those of buddha and zoroaster or philosophical opposition like that of socrates or zeno here then the natural history of human sacrifice may be most distinctly traced from its conjectural origin to a development which is far beyond the last extreme ever reached in the regions of the eastern hemisphere the multitude and variety of phenomena supplied by the universality of the custom and its tendency to indefinite increase render the study easy so strictly do the essential qualities of american paganism correspond with those of the old world that they have been justly quoted as a proof of original unity they both display the remnants of the same primitive traditions acting on the same human nature in the different stages of american civilization resemble each other far less closely than they resemble the corresponding stages of the civilization of the other continents. The similarity is not external, imported, or artificial, but the spontaneous fruit of similar principles and a common origin. Those facts which broadly divide the society of America from that of the rest of mankind and prove how early the separation must have been effected, the absence of domestic animals and the ignorance of the pastoral life are the same which most deeply mark the character of their religious worship this shows that the continent was not peopled by the nomads who inhabit eastern asia for they from time immemorial have had flocks and herds and have known the use of iron which was first made known in america by the european adventurers the conquistadors found some civilized states surrounded by savage tribes of hunters and fishermen but without the intermediate phase of pastoral life this is the great feature that gives its peculiar character to their form of worship as well as to their whole existence without the domestication of animals the tribes of the new world lacked that powerful instrument for softening the wild nature of man which is not only a division of labor And an economy of strength, but a perpetual occasion for the exercise of self-control and unbought kindness. The Indian knew dumb animals only as food, and pursued them only to destroy them. His wars were as ferocious as his treatment of animals, for he could not learn in the violence of warfare the lesson of humanity which was never taught him in ordinary life. As the Indians had no domestic animals, so they had no slaves. They killed their prisoners just as they killed the beasts they caught. To men whose means of existence were so precarious, every additional mouth to be fed added to their difficulty. Their enemies were put to death for the same reason which made a Pennsylvania chief at the end of the last century foresee their own extinction. The white man lives on grain, and we on flesh. This flesh takes thirty months to grow, and it is often hard to find but every one of those wonderful seeds they sow into the earth returns them more than a hundredfold. The flesh on which we live has four legs to run away upon, and we have only two to catch it with, but the seed remains where it is sown. That is why the white man has more children and lives longer than we. Therefore, I say, before the cedars of our village are dead, and the maple trees in the valley cease to yield sugar, the little race of the sowers of grain will have exterminated the race of the eaters of meat unless the hunters begin to sow." Every war threatened them with starvation. They had no time to spare from the pursuit of game. No idlers could stay at home and provide them with food, nothing which the woman could prepare. When many of them came together to fight an enemy, the places through which they passed— did not contain food enough for their number, even if they had had time to catch it. They were therefore compelled to make the war support them, and to live upon what they could get from their enemies. But these were in the same plight, and the conquerors could obtain nothing but the bodies of the captives and the slain. In this extremity, in very early times, famine soon taught the hunter, whose food was all flesh, and who deemed all animal flesh eatable, that there was no specific difference between that of man and beast. Thus, in time of war and scarcity, the hunter becomes by easy stages a cannibal. Hunger is, however, but a temporary and local cause of the cannibalism, which may be shown to have existed in early times throughout the continent. Other inducements would be required in order to make it a general and permanent custom, even in times of peace and plenty the first step was to regard cannibalism as the natural mode of disposing of a slaughtered enemy after it had been done often when there was reason for it and done with some solemnity and rejoicing by men flushed with victory and with the excitement of danger and bloodshed they became unwilling to forego the same festivity when there was no necessity and no provocation but the presence of the captive the idea of feasting on the body of the enemy was not easily dissociated from success in war, and even in places where there was an abundance of vegetable food, captives and strangers were eaten. As an act of vengeance and retaliation, it spread from those who had done it from necessity to those whom the splendid vegetation of tropical America preserved from such necessity. Hence we find the practice confined in some cases to prisoners. When the Spaniards in 1528 driven to extremity by famine, devoured their dead comrades. The natives of Florida were filled with horror at the sight, though they would have rejoiced to eat an enemy. On the other hand, we find it unusual among the inhabitants of very fertile countries. The idea of revenge superseded the condition of hunger, and the idea of sacrifice preserved the custom even in peaceful times. It was natural to give the gods the same food which was eaten by their worshippers. They were supposed to have the same tastes as men, and human flesh had become a luxury to those who had first eaten it from necessity. That which was eaten in moments of victory, and with a sense of triumph, was especially suited for an oblation to the spirits. Thus it became a regular habit to offer to the gods the flesh of slaughtered captives, and this custom is the vast background Of the human sacrifices of America. In some cases, as among Caribbees, cannibalism long survived the sacrifice of human victims, but even here it is certain that the custom formerly subsisted. In other places, and this is the great fact in the history of human sacrifice in Central America, cannibalism had long been extinct in ordinary life when it was still preserved as a part of the religious rites but if human sacrifice in America sprang from cannibalism, and owed its extension to the scarcity of animals, it did not disappear with the progress of civilization and wealth. The Pawnees, who according to Gallatin, were among the gentlest of the Indians, and who never tortured their prisoners, nevertheless offered up a human victim annually at sowing time to secure a good harvest. We find instances of captives who were killed and eaten, without any religious ceremony whatever, but were nevertheless treated with extraordinary kindness down to the moment of a quick and painless death. In Brazil, the prisoner was entertained for a year. A wife was given him, and not a word of unkindness was spoken to him till he was killed and eaten. A neighboring tribe considered this not as an act of enmity, but as an affectionate favor. They abominated those who ate their enemies, but they killed and ate their own relations when they saw that their end was approaching. Among the South American Indians, the temptation to cannibalism was so strong that the Spanish officers felt obliged to permit even the baptized tribes to kill and devour their enemies. The human sacrifices of the Americas were various in intention. In its lowest form, the rite was meant to supply the dead with the blood for which they thirsted. The torture of captives was intended as an expiation for the slain and was in some cases a substitute for ancient sacrifices. The gods, too had their share of the booty and of the captives amongst the rest, but the idea of the enjoyment the gods derived from the sacrifice was utterly material and sensual. The Iroquois prayed to Arioski that he would eat the flesh of the victim and reward them with victory. In Florida, the firstborn child was sacrificed to the son, and one of the Peruvian tribes always immolated the first child of every mother. On the Missouri, these sacrifices have occurred even in the present century. In early times, this Syrian rite was performed all over Central America. In Chile, they sacrificed the favorite child on every urgent occasion. Hay otra detestable circunstancia que manda bien. La especie del pecado, y es que si lo por ellos preguntado es cosa de muchesima importancia, metidos en aquella escura estancia, de guelen al hijalo más amado, o la niña en sacrificio, para tener El idiolo propicio. The most exalted instance of human sacrifice in the legends of the Indian tribes is that of the american epigenia Hiawatha's daughter who perished to save Onondagas? but the great extension of human sacrifice in america did not take place among ignorant savages or thriftless hunters or hungry cannibals it was the act of the mexicans the most humane the most highly civilized and the most prosperous of all the races that inhabited the continent it was the result not of degradation but of extraordinary moral energy and fidelity to religious conviction instead of being an extension of a national cannibalism it preserved in the service of the temples the practice which the refined and wealthy people had otherwise long discarded far from being prompted by revenge it was a mode of death often chosen as an honor by the noblest of the people it was not an act of cruelty for the death was as prompt as possible and in certain cases the victim was feasted and venerated for months before his death. Almost all the degrading accessories, all the mixture of other than purely spiritual elements, which were inseparable from human sacrifice in the rest of the world, were things unknown to those ceremonials of Central America, which have rightly been called the most tremendous religious drama in the whole of paganism. The scale on which the rite was performed distinguishes it not in proportions merely, but in kind, from all other oblations of human victims, like the Hyperboreans, the Tartars, and the Romans in the circus. They did not merely give their children like the worshippers of Moloch, or their captives like most savage tribes. The occasion was not, as among the Greeks, some actual guilt to be atoned, or some particular expiation to be commemorated their sacrifices included all kinds of human victims their own children their nobles who freely volunteered and prisoners en masse they were constant and regular and the number of the victims was the very largest which it is possible to supply the idea from which they sprung was that of original universal sinfulness a guilt which the most enormous sacrifices could hardly wipe away a chasm between man and the divinity which the very utmost efforts would not do more than fill up this notion of the necessity of a universal atonement for a guilt inherited and not incurred independent of all actual sin expiable only in infinite time by the incessant immolation of men on a scale which must needs always increase until it must have eventually terminated in a sort of national suicide was unknown to the paganism of antiquity and was in one respect a deeper view of religion than the gentiles had hitherto attained but there was another idea vaguely present in the minds of the ancients but utterly lost to the mexicans the idea that all sacrifice is insufficient that its merit can only be that it symbolizes or prefigures or commemorates a perfect and divine sacrifice and that it is a sign of spiritual efforts of the soul. Hence the stress and value of their sacrifice was in the ritual alone. It was not a sign, but the actual purchase money of human redemption. Its merit was in quantity and accumulation. In the Mexican sacrifices, paganism exhausted and confounded itself in a way exactly opposite to that by which it reached its end in the ancient world where religion lost its power over men partly through the intellectual opposition of philosophy, and partly through the moral degradation of society, and was neither believed in nor obeyed. But the Aztecs were a strange contrast to the Greeks and Romans. They united the simple credulity of the Homeric age with the moral strength of the Stoics. So far from abandoning their religion, it continually exacted larger sacrifices which they willingly made no claims of the gods staggered their faithfulness or their zeal. They did not fall into the extremes of ferocity or sensuality. They still believed in their gods with a primitive sincerity and testified to their belief with an increasing submissiveness and earnestness. And yet, this energetic consistency in their heathen practices would have ended in the depopulation of the country. Through maintaining a form of worship more contrary to nature, and more constant with the schemes of hell than the most infamous aberrations of declining Hellenism. If in the old world paganism was confuted by the intellectual capacity of the Greeks, it may be said that it was reduced to absurdity in the new world by the moral energy of the Mexicans. Garcilaso has induced many to believe that the gentle government of the Incas extinguished human sacrifice in Peru, but, in fact, Although it was diminished and regulated, it still survived. The mildness of the customs did not mitigate the practice any more than Saturn's golden reign prevented him from being the special god who was pleased with human victims. The worship of the sun, with which human sacrifice was connected throughout Central America, prevailed also in Peru. At the accession of an Inca, great numbers of children were buried alive. At the death of another, 1,000 persons were immolated, and one of the Incas sacrificed his own son in the hope of recovering his health. Yet, unquestionably, there was in Peru a restraining and opposing influence, and among the Aztecs alone did human sacrifice flourish without any symptom of fear or shame or loathing among the people or the kings. All the forms of human sacrifice prevailed in Mexico. The innocent were put to death, as the most precious oblation to the idol. Men of rank selected this mode of death, sometimes for the good of the people, sometimes as an honor to themselves. Some victims of great distinction were identified with the god to whom they were to be sacrificed, and represented his death by their own. Decorated with the insignia of the sun, they led a life of luxury and ease, and were invoked by the people as powerful mediators until with great ceremony they were slain before the idols. The wives and children of the nobles were often buried in their graves. When the victims had no special merit individually, they gained importance by their numbers, and when this principle was once admitted, it followed inevitably that the numbers ever continued to increase. Any diminution in the quantity of victims would be an explanation of the anger of the gods, and the successes of Cortes were actually attributed to the relaxation in the zeal with which victims were supplied by Montezuma. In reality, there was no diminution except from the exhausted supply of captives, of whom his immediate predecessor had made a wasteful slaughter. In ordinary years, at the most probable estimate, twenty five hundred human victims perished at Mexico. The skulls piled up in the temple were found to amount to a hundred and thirty six thousand, and in a town of moderate size there were near a 100,000 skulls. The great temple at Mexico was finished in 1487 and inaugurated in the following year. For a long time, captives had been collected for this occasion, and when the time came, 84,000 men were sacrificed, and 16,000 more were added to them before the end of the year. The name of the monarch who perpetrated this unexampled butchery is used to this day in mexico as a synonym for a scourge prescott who has failed to comprehend the nature of the sanguinary rite of Anhuac, and to whom the very notion of sacrifice seems to be unintelligible in his anxiety to brand these customs by the most degrading comparison he can conceive borrows from voltaire the idea of comparing the mexican priests to the dominicans and their ceremonies to the modern inquisition even if we could admit his supposition of quote, fiendish passions unquote, as the motive in either case, still no comparison could be more infelicitous than that of a tribunal essentially political and serving after a fashion the ends of state with one so entirely and intensely religious that the wealth and prosperity of the country was deliberately sacrificed to it. And yet, long after the last victim had fallen in honor of the sun-god of the aztecs the civilized nations of christian europe continued to wage wholesale destruction on as vast a scale against persons accused of no crime against the civil order and not even convicted of the religious guilt which was imputed to them the parallel phenomenon of trials for witchcraft ought to explain to us the power of superstition to familiarize men with the most inhuman butchery of helpless beings. Here there was no distinction of religion or of calling. Protestants and Catholics, clergy and laity, vied with each other for two hundred years to provide victims, and every refinement of legal ingenuity and torture was used in order to increase their number. In the north of Italy, the great jurist, Alcadius, saw a hundred witches burnt on one day, in a little town of Silesia, 102 witches were executed in the year 1651, and in a village of Hesse, with 540 inhabitants, 30 suffered in four years. At Salzburg, in 1678, a murrain among the cattle cost 97 suspected persons their lives. In the neighborhood of Werdenfels in Bavaria, nearly all the women were exterminated. In two villages near Treves, all but two were put to death. The Jesuit Spee, whose hair turned prematurely gray in his terrible calling, attended two hundred in two years, every one of whom had confessed in order to escape torture. He tells us of a single judge who had sent five hundred witches to the flames, and another had caused seven hundred to be burnt in the course of nineteen years. At Quidlenburg, in the year 1589, on one day, 133 witches were put to death. In two villages of the Diocese of Mentz, the dean condemned 300 persons to die for the crime of witchcraft. A single bishop of Würzburg condemned 219, and the bishop of Bamberg, where the population did not exceed 100,000, caused a report to be published in 1659 Of the death of six hundred witches in his episcopate, in England alone, under the Tudors and the Stuarts, the victims of this superstition amounted to thirty thousand. Yet, from the appearance of Spee's Cauchio in 1631 to the burning of the last witch in 1783, all sensible men were persuaded that the victims were innocent of the crimes for which they suffered intolerable torments and an agonizing death but those who hunted them out with cunning perseverance and the inflexible judges who never spared their lives firmly believed that their execution was pleasing in the sight of God and that their sin could not be forgiven by men. If this was done amid the civilization of modern Europe by experienced jurists and by Christian bishops from an erroneous interpretation of the precepts of religion, it is surely ridiculous to attribute to unintelligent barbarity and to treat with a contemptuous horror the enormous efforts of expiation which were made by the unhappy Mexicans, who for fifteen hundred years were deprived of the gospel of redemption, and who sacrificed the most precious thing on earth because they were ignorant of the death of that victim who alone could take away the sins of the world. End of part four. End of human sacrifice. By John Amirich Edward Dahlberg